Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. 2019 was a big year for Invesc. The Carmel, Indiana-based firm made a splash when it acquired operator Commonwealth Senior Living and 20 of its properties for $340 million. Today, Invesc's portfolio numbers more than 120 buildings with a gross value of about $2 billion. In this episode of Transform, I speak with Scott White, Invesc's chairman and CEO. White describes how the Commonwealth deal came together, why he thinks the industry's workforce crisis is going to get worse before it gets better, and shares his take on short-term versus long-term thinking in the senior living industry. Before we hear that interview, I'd like to tell you about two upcoming senior housing news events, Dished and Build. Our culinary event, Dished, is on March 12th in Chicago. This annual event hosts 200 plus attendees in food service, culinary operations, and senior living management across the continuum. The full day event will have speakers from across the country, food, hospitality, and a full serving of fun. Then on May 6th, SHN presents Build, a full day event featuring thought leaders and C-suite executives discussing the future of development in senior living. Network with owners, operators, developers, investors, architects, designers, and more at this event dedicated to the trends shaping the future of senior housing development. For more information on these events, visit seniorhousingnews.com forward slash events. And now my interview with Scott White, Chairman and CEO of Invesc. Scott, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Tim? Great. Thanks for joining us. So um, it's been a big year for Invesc. I want to jump right in and uh, ask you about the big acquisition you did on the senior living side with Commonwealth, uh, acquiring both the operating company and a 20 property real estate portfolio for about $340 million, I believe. Can you just talk about how that deal came about? Did your phone ring one day and it was uh, Rich Brewer on the line? Well, as you said, it has been another big year for Invesc. This is uh, we've been doing this about three and a half years now, and each of those years we've we've grown our portfolio by I don't know maybe four hundred ish million dollars. So today, about three and a half years after launching this company, we're, we're getting close to to two billion dollars and have assembled a portfolio of about one hundred and twenty four properties across the country. The Commonwealth transaction was was really a fun and fascinating one for us, and. Uh, it should almost be a poster child for or a uh, a plug for the Nick Conference. I know the Nick Conference gets a lot of uh, you know people on both sides of the fence saying they like it, and others saying it's uh, you know it's just a speed dating. You can't get anything done. I'm actually fascinated by the Nick Conference. You know, in, in our shop, we we like to move fast. We got a, a saying that uh, we we move at the speed of white, given my last name. And uh, the beauty of Nick is you can really just immerse yourself and, and, you know, in, in two or three days, you could get 25, 30, 35 meetings in easily. And look, are they all going to go somewhere? No, they're all not going to go somewhere, but it's fast, efficient. You know, what works and what doesn't work. So back in uh, the fall of 18, last year's Nick, we were introduced to, to Richard Brewer and his team. Um, and that, that started the conversation that started the dialogue. Um, yeah, we're very fortunate in that there are members of our team that knew Richard, that knew the bankers who had Loki on that transaction. Um, so, so it wasn't the first time we'd heard of Commonwealth. It wasn't the first time we were sort of introduced to Richard and, and his team. But it was the first time we, we 
formally met and started a dialogue that ended with our acquisition of, as you say, both the operating company and the, uh, the prop co this year. Right. Uh, can you talk about the decision to acquire the management company? I think, uh, obviously we're more used to seeing REITs, uh, go after real estate was acquiring the operating company always the idea Were there other versions of the deal that were discussed. Yeah, you know, um, we're very fortunate and, and somewhat uh, as a result of a strategic decision we made when we went public, we are not a REIT. We very deliberately decided to not elect REIT status when we went public um, in 2016. And at that time, part of the rationale was it gives us greater flexibility to do transactions just like this. The beauty of this transaction is it fit very strategically with what we're trying to accomplish. It gave us um, some really solid real estate in the mid-Atlantic region. It gave us one of the best operating companies in the industry. Um, and look, every deal has to work for both sides. And the beauty of this transaction, and I think what gave us a little bit of an edge in the end, was we were able to acquire both the real estate and the operations. The sellers were, were looking for a, a fulsome solution. They were looking to exit both the, the real estate and the management company. And we were able to come along and offer a one-stop shop. It wasn't a, well, we'll buy the real estate. You have to find someone else for the operations. Or um, we'll buy it all and they'll have to sell off the operations. We were pretty clear. At the beginning, we could acquire it all. We wanted to own it all. We were excited to have a management company. Um, and I think it gave us a, a strategic advantage in our ability to get this acquisition done. We're excited to have Commonwealth, both the properties as part of our portfolio, and more importantly, to have Richard and his team as part of our team. And does Invesc own 100% of the operating company? So we acquired 100% of the operating company, and we have created a um, incentive program for the senior executive team at Commonwealth to earn back a minority stake in that operating company. We feel very strongly about aligning interests for long-term success, and we think the best way to do that is for us to share the ultimate ownership of that. But today, we own 100%, and we will always, or at least in the foreseeable future, own a majority of that, uh, of that entity. Interesting. And that, uh, the incentive program is based around things like see uh, revenue, things like that. That's absolutely right. And uh, Invesc has been transitioning other communities onto the Commonwealth platform. I think on the last earnings call you guys did, um, there was talk about that even happening in an expedited pace, um, including 10 former Greenfield communities. Can you talk about uh, what's going on with these transitions or these turnaround situations? Are, and if so, are there aspects of those operations that Commonwealth is sort of tackling as a first priority? So um, when I talked about the strategic rationale for us acquiring Commonwealth, one of the things that was beautiful about this was that we already owned assets in the same geographic region. While we are relatively geographically agnostic, we also realize if you want to own an operating company, you want to have that critical mass. We owned assets that at that time were operated by Greenfield. We had had some discussions with Greenfield uh, prior to the Commonwealth acquisition about them downsizing some of the operations that, that they had in our portfolio. These are not turnarounds. They've been, been operating for a while by Greenfield. They've been doing fine. Um, but the, the timing was somewhat fortuitous in that we'd already had those conversations and, and talked about transitioning some of the Greenfield properties to a new operator. Along comes Commonwealth um, with great overlap in terms of the, the regional focus. So 
we transitioned a handful of those buildings from Greenfield to Commonwealth. We also had the opportunity to transition a couple of buildings to Heritage, another operator in our portfolio, who also had very clear um, geographic overlap with the Greenfield portfolio, um, which, which made it a very interesting opportunity for us to create value, to take assets that were performing, but we think can perform better, put in a strong operator, in the case of Commonwealth, an operator that we own, so our ability to collect the fees that we would otherwise be spending, and with the ability to heritage to, to grow a relationship that has been spectacular for us and one we feel very strong and confident about. And maybe to go a little bit big picture, I think we've seen a lot of challenges on the senior housing side in the last few years. There's been oversupply in some markets, labor expenses keep going up. I'm wondering what does occupancy look like for your senior housing assets with Invesc? And I think on the last earnings call, you said you didn't want to say you were calling a bottom, uh, but maybe maybe reading between the lines a little bit, it sounded to me like you think we're probably at or near a bottom in terms of occupancy. Is that fair? That is fair. Look, our, our shop portfolio occupancy has been very consistent at about 88% for at least the last five or six quarters, maybe longer. Most of our seniors housing portfolio is in secondary markets. I think that there's a broad brush oversupply statement in the industry. I think there's a broad brush, de- brush declining occupancy theme in the industry. But when you really drill down and you look at some of the markets, you look at some of the NIC data, Yes, the top 31 MSAs seem to have greater supply and greater oncoming supply in terms of development than demand. But when you step back and you, you look at the next, call it 70 or so, of the top 100 MSAs, 25 of those have zero construction or development going on right now, and, and probably half have absorptions that are exceeding uh, the supply side. So while I realize there is strain in the system on the, the supply-demand imbalance, I think if you look at specific markets, it might not be as bad um, as everyone paints it with a broad brush. With that said, I also remind people that that we're in the real estate business, and real estate ownership is a long-term asset class. We don't acquire assets, nor do we set out to build this portfolio to focus specifically on occupancy quarter to quarter. And I'm very clear with, with our constituents on that, our shareholders. Uh, our team that, yes, occupancy matters to the success of our portfolio, but I'm more interested in long-term occupancy trends and not necessarily quarter over quarter. Do I think we've hit a bottom? Maybe. I I don't think I am uh, astute enough, to be honest, to be able to say, yes, this quarter is the bottom, next quarter is the bottom. What I am seeing is that we all know that that there is a demand coming, whether that's two years out or 10 years out. I, I think there's great argument around that. With that said, real estate lasts many years. I expect to own these assets 10 and 15 years from now, where I think you'll have better supply-demand imbalances. We actually think 2021 is probably a turning point, but you know, our guess is, or my guess really, is as good as anybody else's. Um, so that's the, the supply-demand they ask about. I think the labor, labor cost question is, is a more intriguing one. Uh, there's no doubt we're seeing this theme across the portfolio, not just on the seniors' housing side, but on the skilled side as well, um, attracting and retaining personnel in this current historically low unemployment environment is very difficult. That is not unique to the senior housing industry. I think that is something the entire economy is facing right now. And that's a function of historical, um, historically low unemployment. 
With that said, again, I harken back to what I said in terms of real estate being a long-term asset class, and we will have uh, cycles that, that, that reflect changes in supply and demand of labor, that reflect changes in wage pressure, that um, I am confident and comfortable that over the long term, this is a very viable business model. There'll be changes. There's no doubt about it. But I do view the world through a longer term lens and not just what's happening in the last quarter of 2019. Yeah, maybe to stay with that point for just a, a minute, the labor question long term seems to maybe only become more complicated as the demographics shift and occupancy goes up and uh, there's a greater need for caregivers, but uh, maybe an ongoing shortage of them. Do you think that there's um, uh, anything that needs to change on the kind of recruitment or retention side? I'm thinking sort of big picture things. I talk to executives about this all the time on the operating side about what they're trying to do. And I hear a lot about career ladders. I hear a lot about selling the mission, but I wonder if some more uh, bold kind of uh, change is going to need to be made to uh, solve the labor issue long-term. Oh, no doubt, Tim. I think that is uh, maybe one of the best questions you've had so far today in terms of really honing in on the key industry issues and looking beyond quarter to quarter. Again, I think our industry is is uh, guilty of, of talking in, in the short term and not always looking out in the long term. I do think fundamentally as a macro issue, labor is one of our biggest problems. There's no doubt about it. I, if you step back and you reflect how many high school kids do you know today that are thinking about college saying, you know, I'm really looking for a career in the seniors housing industry. I'm looking for a career in the skilled nursing industry. I'm looking, I want to be an operator and I want to uh, get into the business of helping our aging population. It just doesn't exist. And I think fundamentally that's what we as an industry need to think about. We need to think about how do we create a, a buzz and interest and excitement and enthusiasm, a career path, for young people, for young adults thinking about where they're going in their career. You know, it's funny because as I talk to so many people in our business, myself included, yes, people, how'd you get into the business? And the, the 98% of the time I hear by accident. I mean, either your parent was in the business or by accident. And what I think we need to change is get to a point where, you know, I was intrigued by it when I was, was in high school, when I, I learned about it because of influences in my community. I learned about the aging demographic. I learned about helping people. As you talked about the mission, what's the mission? What are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to provide better healthcare solutions for an aging population. That doesn't just mean becoming a doctor. Um, that doesn't just mean entering directly in the medical profession, but it means providing long-term care for our senior, senior population. And quite frankly, it's even broader than that. When you think about the, the, the senior demographic, it's, it's things like senior uh, technology oriented towards seniors. It's things like hospice. It's things like there's so many careers available for catering to this market. Yet I think fundamentally we as an industry haven't really dug our teeth in and said, how do we change this? What do we do? How many universities out there have programs that are focused on this? If I were to ask somebody in my industry, what do you think the top five programs in the country are that provide feeders to our industry? I bet you no one can answer that question. That's where the fundamental issue is, and that's where I think we as an industry need to step back and think about how do we create excitement? How do we create a buzz? How do we create a training program? How do we create a career path? How do we make this a place you want to uh, set out to have a career for the long term? 
What do you think it'll take to get there? Because I've been hearing about the labor challenges for several years, at least probably longer. And um, I think there is kind of widespread agreement that it is such a long-term challenge. Um, but I'm not sure that there is the kind of action yet that you're talking about. Do you think it's going to get worse before uh, some of these things actually take place? You do? Yeah, I fundamentally do. As you pointed out, you, you know, everybody talks about the supply demand imbalance and the coming wave of, of aging baby boomers, the silver tsunami, but that's just going to create greater strains on the system. The other thing that I think some people are talking about, but, but not maybe as many people are talking about, is just the aging of the workforce. So it's one thing to say that we're going to have an aging demographic into using these services and facilities. What not as many people are talking about is the aging out of the workforce, those that are currently administrators, those that are currently working in facilities, those that are, are, are have spent a career maybe as owners of assets, whatever the case may be, those people are starting to think about retirement, you know, maybe not in 2019. I could be five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out, whatever the case may be. But I do think the supply-demand imbalance, and when I say supply-demand imbalance, you're talking about two of those. You're talking about the supply-demand imbalance as it relates to the, the, the services that are available, and then the supply-demand balance as it relates to the employees or the personnel that are ultimately going to become a part of, of this business. So what is it going to take? It's going to take leadership. It's going to take a visionary. It's going to take someone that really grasps this and says, you know what, here's where I'm going to make my mark on the industry. I think it's going to take some more time. I think everyone is dealing with, with short-term um, issues of occupancy, issues of, of um, reimbursement, so on and so forth. And I think as, as we step back and think about the long-term of our industry, we need to really reflect on how do we attract people to it? And how do we retain people? Um, you know, what I've talked about primarily is attracting people into the industry. But as you highlighted, what's the career path? You know, why do people stay in this business? We as, a, as an industry, I think, have greater turnover than, than many other industries. Why is that? Are, are we creating a career path? Are we creating an environment for people to succeed? Are we creating a, a, an exciting place to work? Look, every single job, my job, your job, no matter what, who it is, has good and bad. There's no doubt about it. But I show up to work every day and view the world through a lens of this is the most amazing opportunity I have. And I've done that in every career I've been in. How do we get more people to show up to work every day in our industry to say, this truly is an amazing opportunity. Whatever I do and wherever I fit into the team and the ecosystem, I'm contributing, I'm adding value, I'm making the world a better place. This is what we need to figure out. Um, yeah, we could talk, uh, talk about labor on and on. I guess, I guess maybe before we totally leave the subject, I'm wondering if you, you've brought up short term versus long term thinking a couple times. And do you think the industry or players within it are guilty of thinking in the short term too much? Um, cause I, I hear that sometimes, but then sometimes I also hear the opposite and it's that everyone's too focused on the long term and they're just sort of sitting back on their haunches waiting for the big demand wave to hit. Well, look, I, I think. In my opinion, people are too focused on the issues in the short term and giving the answer, it'll fix itself in the long term. So what does that mean, Tim? It means people need to, to take action today. So thinking in the long term doesn't mean waiting for the long term to, to make that decision to fix problems. It means mm -hmm. don't reflect on the fact that occupancy may be down 50 basis points in Q4 of 2019. Think about what is the occupancy trend over the next 10 years? What are the supply-demand imbalances, and what do we do today to fix that? What are the 
the, the labor issues that we're facing. What do we do to fix that? What are the reimbursement issues we're facing? And what do we do to fix that? These are all long-term problems that certainly require short-term action, but I don't want to dwell just on today's issues. I want to think bigger and longer term. Right. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about Invesc's asset management approach? I know that uh, your organization's a little different because you now own an operating company, but we've heard that REITs, private equity, uh, you name it, all these ownership groups are managing their assets much more actively than in the past. And I think uh, that's causing a little bit of consternation among some of the operators and maybe some of its growing pains that just have to be gotten through. Uh, maybe some of it uh, is... Uh, questions about how much oversight is is helpful versus uh, kind of uh, too many cooks in the kitchen. No doubt about it. Look, we, this is an operator-driven business. Everything we do is aligning with the right operators, and ultimately, we want long-term repeat customers. We want to grow with our operators, and, and forming partnerships with operators that we're going to micromanage is not the key to long-term success. We generally are more hands-off. With that said, we do have a, a portfolio management team. In fact, for the size of our company, I'd say it's probably a fairly robust team because we want to know what's going on in our buildings. We want to know what's going on with our operators. We want to form long-term relationships. It's not calling to say, hey, I see occupancies down in this specific building by uh, 50 basis points. What are you going to do? It's it's calling on a regular basis and getting out and touring the properties and spending time in management and understanding their frustrations. And more importantly, sharing best practices across the platform. You know, one of the things that's really exciting for us about owning an operating company is not necessarily pushing that operating company out to all of our facilities because we're not going to do that. We, we acquired Commonwealth with a very clear business plan of making them a, a very strong, if not the preeminent, regionally focused operator in the mid-Atlantic, today primarily focused on Virginia. That is the plan. It is not to, to put them in every asset in our portfolio, but we do have the ability to now leverage the resources in that platform to understand what some of the best practices are, both taking Commonwealth's best practices and sharing them outside with other operators, or looking at what we see in other parts of our platform and say, hey, Commonwealth, here are some things that you might want to consider. So I think uh, you've correctly identified uh, the tug and pull, so to speak, in terms of making sure that you are paying careful attention to your assets, creating value for your shareholders. But at the same time, in the end, you have to remember it's all about having the appropriate relationships, about having the, the appropriate trust, and building a, again, getting back to that long-term vision and mission of creating value for our shareholders, and most importantly, creating an environment for our operators to succeed and deliver the appropriate services to the ultimate residents. Again, that's why we're in business is to make sure those residents are being taken care of properly and making sure our operators are set up to succeed. Uh, and you've got a portfolio of private pay senior housing. We've also got SNFs. You've also got MOBs. How do you see uh, synergies playing out across these care settings? Do you think it's going to increase in years ahead? No, you know, our strategy is not predicated on synergy, uh, synergies across those platforms. Are there some small synergies in terms of some of the back office stuff? Yeah, but that's not, not our investment thesis. So our investment thesis is to build a highly diversified, and I emphasize those two words, portfolio of cash-generating, healthcare-oriented real estate assets. That's what we've set out to do. We believe that the, the three assets or the three asset classes you've identified, MOB, SNF, and Seniors Housing, are fundamentally different. They have different risks and rewards associated with them. They tend to have different cycles to a certain degree. And by blending them, we believe we could build a better long-term portfolio that blends the risks and rewards to create outsized returns for our investors. That's really what we've set out to do and it's set out to do. And it's not really predicated 
on uh, synergies. Do you see senior living? I think a, a lot of other organizations are starting to strategize around senior living, playing a bigger role with payers like Medicare Advantage and being more integrated into healthcare systems. Um, do you see that as a, as a future trend? Um, you know, hard to say. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a bunch of different theses on this. I think I step back and I think about what are some of the things we need to solve in the private pay seniors housing space that who ultimately be the winners and losers. You know, everyone talks about the, the, the middle class consumer. What are we going to deliver and come up with as, as an industry for that middle class consumer? There's certainly a fair amount of seniors housing product that is focused on the, the more affluent consumer, but the more affluent consumer is not the middle of the bell curve. When you look across the United States and you think about what your ultimate consumer is going to be, it's, it's going to be predicated on finding a, a product that you can deliver to the middle class. Who is best suited to do that? It, it's finding and attracting the best caregiver, something we've already talked about, who's best suited to do that. So we've talked about uh, the need for more middle market product, definitely talked about the need for improvements on the recruitment and retention side. Anything else uh, that you see on the private pay senior living side that really needs attention or needs to change or improve? You know, I think those are the two keys. I mean, there, there's always a list of opportunities for improvement. There's always a list of, of uh, things that both we as owners and partners of our operators and our operators can do better. But when you look at some of the big picture themes, I think that that captures it. And what do you think of private pay memory care? That's been particularly struggling part of the continuum in the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, in our portfolio, um, we haven't seen as much struggle with it as we look at private pay memory care. I mean, my ultimate goal is that someday we won't need memory care facilities. It, it is a, a uh, an, an awful disease that that we as a society have grappled with for a long time. Um, And I think it's only getting worse in terms of the percentage of the population that is stricken with some sort of memory impairment as they age. With that said, providing the appropriate setting uh, to care for those residents is is certainly a focus of ours. You know, we we have a, a partnership with Constant Care and our portfolio of Constant Care. We have uh, very strong coverage, very strong occupancy, 90 plus percent. We continue to grow that portfolio. We recently announced the addition of three new properties. Um, I think in a in a memory care setting, I, I guess I shouldn't say just in a memory care setting because this applies to all senior housing, but in a memory care setting, in the right market with the right operator and the right products, which I generally think is a smaller product, quite frankly, um, there is absolutely a model that succeeds. Uh, I've certainly heard that there are some people struggling with it, but we haven't seen that part of our portfolio face headwinds. Uh, so I've got a couple of questions just about, uh, the invest backstory, uh, and future plans. So you came out of main street, uh, in Indiana, along with several other invest executives, I believe Can you talk to me about what drove the decision to start invest and are there any lessons from your time at main street that you're applying now in your investment strategy? So, um, as we think back to, to the Main Street story, you may recall Main Street had a Main Street was a development company based in Indiana that took a portfolio of assets public um, back in 2012, as I recall, under the name Health Lease Properties. 
a few of us, myself, I'd like Chester, um, Scott Higgs, we're all part of that Main Street team and, and the Health Beast team. That portfolio grew from 2012 to 2014 to, it started with about 10 assets, grew to 53 assets, and was ultimately sold to Welltower in 2014. After we sold Health Lease, we, we returned to Main Street, although we never really left Main Street because Main Street externally managed Health Lease. Um, and we set out to follow the same model. It worked very well with, with Health Lease for everyone involved. The, the ultimate buyer got a great portfolio. Uh, investors were, were well rewarded for investing in Health Lease. And in 2015, a couple of us, again, myself, Adlai Chester, Scott Higgs, set out to replicate the strategy. It's fairly similar to Health Lease. And in 2015, we found a seed portfolio that we ultimately took public in 2016. Um, the original portfolio was 23 assets, about $420 million of gross book value. That was June of 2016. Today, we have about 124 assets, almost $2 billion of gross book value. And, you know, when we set out to, to build health lease the first time, when we set out to build invest this time, it was to build a highly diversified portfolio of cash generating healthcare real estate assets. And we haven't changed since the beginning. We've changed our view on various assets in the portfolio and things that we are more or less excited about. But that's really just a function of the market and what we're seeing and not necessarily specific lessons learned. So you mentioned the health lease play that ended with the sale to Welltower. Um, is there already kind of an idea of a similar kind of uh, exit or endgame for Invesc? You know, when, when we set out to do Invesc, uh, I'm sorry, let me go back to Health Lease. When we set out to do Health Lease, it wasn't the strategy to take it public, build it, and sell it. It was a strategy to build a forever company to focus on creating long-term shareholder value. And uh, some other suitors came along and, and offered the company and the company's shareholders an opportunity to exit at a, and lock in a great return, and we decided to exit at that point in time. When we set out to do Invesc, um, and, and Health Place only exists for about two years, we're now three and a half years into Invesc. Very similarly, we did not, and I emphasize this when we were public, we did not set out to build it and sell it again. We set out to build a long-term sustainable company. And you know, this time, which is different than Health Place, we internalized a management team. This time, we've built a much more robust platform. You know, we have a, a great platform of, of industry veterans that we have a long-term view. We, we're in this to create long-term shareholder value. We're fiduciaries for our shareholders. And to the extent someone were to come along and, and uh, consider acquiring the company and, and rewarding our shareholders for the investment they made in a way that, that made sense, we're open to that. There's no doubt about it, but that wasn't the goal and that's not necessarily the goal today. Got it. And that Main Street product was really known as a kind of a high-end resort-style post-acute uh, offering. And um, I think that model has hit some challenges. Uh, and since then, Main Street tried to roll out some other uh, models that they've run into a, a couple uh, obstacles in, in launching that as quickly as they wanted. So I guess I'm wondering what you think of that post-acute space, having seen firsthand at Main Street, I think you weren't there for all of the, the most recent, uh, obviously, challenges, but um, does that uh, inform how you think about the SNF world and, and maybe short-term post-acute in particular? 
You know, we think about short-term post-acute, it's part of our portfolio. We view it through the exact same lens that I discussed memory care before. I think at the, at the right price, which is important, the right price in the right market with the right operator, we have seen those assets, assets succeed. I think where they've hit some obstacles is potentially where they were very expensive real estate developments that maybe had the wrong operators or maybe were in the wrong market. And I think that's a, a broad brush you could paint across the portfolio. You could say the same thing about long-term skilled nursing. You could say the same thing about uh, seniors housing, memory care, whatever the case may be. I, I don't think I'd make that specific to that short-stay transitional post-acute facility. I think with the right operators and the right markets, those can succeed. You just have to make sure you get in at the right price. So if tomorrow you were to sit down with two or three of your peers, other CEOs in the industry, people who you really respect, I'm curious what you would want to talk about them. What are some questions you'd be posing to them? Or uh, what are some topics that you'd want to have on the table? It's a good question, Tim. Um, you know, I go back to what I talked about before because I am pretty passionate about it, is trying to figure out how we fix the long-term labor issue in our business. I, I am, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in giving people the opportunity to succeed. I'm a big believer in education and, and providing the right educational platform. And I think one of the big things that we as an industry need to figure out is, is how are we going to attract the right people to our industry? How are we going to retain the right people in our industry? How are we going to provide training platforms for professionals in our industry. And, you know, you challenged me before, and I thought it was uh, it was very interesting, and, and um, I give you credit for, so why is nobody fixing it? I got it, Scott. I, I've heard this, and you make a pretty good case, but why is no one fixing it? Uh, I don't have the answer to that. And I think I would love to really brainstorm with, with some of my peers in the industry and say, what can we do? Instead of showing up at every conference and talking about it or, or having headlines in the news about this being an issue. What do we fundamentally want to do to, to fix this? How can we fix it? I think um, that's probably one of the most pressing long-term issues facing our industry today. Um, yes, for sort of a, a couple of things I talk about, if there was something else that I'd love to understand better from some of my more experienced peers is, is the use of data in the industry to make decisions. You know, we've only been around for three and a half years and our portfolio by industry standards is on the smaller side with only 124 buildings and, and $2 billion of gross book value. But for some of my more experienced, longer term, larger peers, how do you use data to, to improve outcomes, to, to help our operators succeed, to help our residents get the right experience, to help maximize value for our shareholders, to help maximize the experience for our, our team members, the, those people that we work with. You know, when we live in a society of big data, uh, I'm enamored by it. And I think data can, can help us answer a lot of, of questions we have. And I'm sort of curious how others in the industry grapple with that, how they use it to maximize outcomes. Right. So uh, to close, I'd love to uh, just get a little bit of uh, a more personal question. And obviously, you've been known in the industry from your time in Main Street, now with Invesc. Um, but I'm wondering if you can, if there's a, something about yourself that you think people in the industry might not know, or maybe something about you that you think is really uh, sort of key to understanding how you tick that you could share. So I'll go back to the comment I made at the very beginning of this uh, call and that uh, there's something we talk about in our firm, and it's something that I've actually talked about other places I've worked. We move at the speed of light. I wake up every day fired up, energized, excited. I have more energy and more passion than most people in our industry. I love what I do, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. 
Um, I think I can get more done in a day than most people will get done in a week or a month. I'm, I'm, uh, I work fast. I smile. I'm grateful. I'm happy. I'm fortunate. And I try to bring that passion to the team every day. I try to motivate others to see how lucky we are to have these opportunities to transform an industry, to transform lives, to make uh, our space a better place to get it done and to get it done today. We move at the speed of light. I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of what we've accomplished. If you look back, we've been in existence for three and a half years. We grew from 23 assets to 124 assets. We've grown faster than any, any real estate public company in the United States. I'm not talking about in healthcare. I'm saying any public real estate company in the United States, since we've been public over the last three and a half years, we've grown in an annualized care of about 50%. No other public company has grown that fast, and and I think that's a little bit of a testament to moving at the speed of light, to showing up with a positive attitude, to having a great deal of positive positive energy, and to focus on getting it done and getting it done today. All right, the speed of light. Let's uh, leave it there. Thanks again so much for joining us. Take care, Tim. That does it for this episode of Transform. Don't forget to follow our two upcoming events, Dished and Build, online at seniorhousingnews.com forward slash events. I'm Tim Mullaney. Thanks for listening.